<laughs> I gave the impression of being about to say something terribly important. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, and thank you so much, Summer School, for inviting me to make this contribution. Summer School means an awful lot to me, so I have come to this theme talk with gratitude and humility. Humility and yet a degree of narcissism. <laughs> the most important thing in my theme talk this morning that I want to say is from my heart, thank you Summer School, for the warmth with which you have greeted my new hair. <laughs> but on behalf of what I call my beard, I would like to register a small note of hurt. <laughs> hair, 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 nothing. <laughs> nothing. There should have been a trigger warning. A hair trigger warning. I'm, I'm sorry about that, I'm so sorry. So welcome everyone, and let's, let's just begin with a moment of stillness, and I'm going to invite Elspeth to come and light our chalice. Thank you. This morning I want to try to weave together two themes. Being different and coming out. I want to try to weave those themes together. Be, for me, being different and coming out have changed everything. Coming out usually means telling people who don't know that you are lesbian, gay, bisexual or transgender. But I want to begin by telling you a very ancient story about a very particular type of coming out. This is an old story and it contains something very like coming out. This is the story of a traveller. A traveller who was a long way from home. His journey had been long and he found himself in a land he barely knew. It was a hot, dry place. During the day the sun was fierce but the nights could be very cold. The traveller was tired and hungry and thirsty. He came to a small town and in the dusk the lantern in the windows of the houses were being lit. 
The town looked very cosy. The traveller knocked on the door of a smart house and a servant answered. The traveller could see a very grand feast being prepared inside. He could see all kinds of treats and sweets and wine and cool fresh water. He told the servant he was tired and thirsty and politely asked for some water, some bread and a place to sleep for the night. But before the servant could answer, the master of the house came to the door. I don't know you. Why exactly should I help you? He said, go away or I'll call my dogs. As he walked away, the weary traveller thought to himself, I wonder who will help me and what will I do if nobody does? He knocked on a few more doors and he could see through those doors families and friends gathering for their evening meal, but there was always the same answer. We don't know you. Keep walking. Then, at the edge of town, he came to an old cottage, which was rather run down and rather scruffy. He thought, let's have one more try. It's worth a go. So he knocked on the door and an elderly couple appeared in plain and threadbare clothes. The traveller, who was getting really thirsty and hungry by now, once again asked for help. Well, we don't have very much to eat or drink, said the old man, but you're welcome to share what we have, and we'll make you a bed from some blankets and straw. Please come in. The old woman gave the traveller and her husband some soup and the traveller noticed that she had none left for herself. It's fine, she said. You look like you need it more than I do. I'll make do with some bread. Why don't you have a look in the pot, said the traveller, and see if it's really empty. The woman smiled, but even so, she checked the pot and it was indeed full of soup. The old couple were puzzled and just a little afraid and the old man said, how did that happen? The traveller smiled and quietly he told the elderly couple something about himself. The old woman could not help herself. She laughed and said, really, you're a what? <laughs> I'm a god, said the traveller. And you too, the poorest people in town, you're the ones who have helped me. You did not see a stranger, 
but a guest, a fellow human being. I am a God, but your kindness, your human kindness, has been a blessing to me and your modesty. I will reward you. What would you like? The couple asked if they could be servants of the temple for the rest of their lives, and they asked never to be separated, not even in death. The traveller thanked them and went on his way. The old couple did indeed work in the temple for the rest of their lives. After many years, one day in the temple garden, they were sitting on a bench, holding hands and chatting. After a while, they ran out of chatter and just looked at each other, smiling. And in that moment, they died together. And as they died, they were changed into two trees, an oak tree and a linden tree. All these years later, the two trees are still there, the oak tree and the linden. And by now, their branches and roots are intertwined. On a hot day, they provide welcome shade for anyone who happens to be passing by. And I mean anyone. Let's sing a hymn. Uh, we're going to sing hymn number 191 in the Green Book to worship rightly.
So in a moment, we're going to come to some prayers. But just before we do, uh, I'd like to thank Carl for playing and Louise and Paul for setting up the room yesterday evening. Thank you. So let's pray together. And perhaps each of us might take a moment to call ourselves into the presence of that which is sacred to us. Great Spirit, Father, Mother, Holy Child, God, Original Darkness, Original Spark, Spirit of the Seas and Stars, hallowed be thy names we are born in wholeness and light help us great spirit to honor our birthright work through us holy one make us useful make us powerful with love may your will be done god of all Give us each day enough. Give us insight and perspective. Give us bread and faith and dignity. God, open our hearts to humility. Help us to surrender sometimes. Help us to be quick to forgive and help us to know when we are in need of forgiveness. Lead us, Great Spirit, through delight and discernment, through the ways of stillness and sharing, into thankfulness and laughter, into reverence, joy and wholeness. May we not distance ourselves from the pain we cause in others and deliver us from distancing ourselves from our own pain. Deliver us from cruelty and dishonour. Great Spirit, your name lives and breathes in all names and one of your names is nothing. Hallowed be your mystery. Great Spirit, all of creation is your ocean, our sky, your pasture, our garden, our duty of care. Your faithful flowing river is our path of brilliance and darkness. Your cosmos, our home, of many forms and holy emptiness. God of love and life, 
May all people, all nations, all creatures, all seas and mountains, all beaches and forests, all stars and planets, all cities, all empires, all galaxies and atoms, honour you in their very being. For yours is the realm of birth and, and song and fire. Yours is the realm of glory. May this truth resound through endless cycles of formation and separation, through endless cycles of destruction and, and generation. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Before I start, I just want to say I'm, I'm sorry because I know I'm going to be drinking a lot of water during this theme talk. It's not because I'm nervous or anything. <laughs> in, in, my, in my first ever service about eight or nine years ago in Brighton, I was in such a state of terror that I had to peel my lower lip from my teeth in order to speak. And it must have sounded to many of the, of the congregation, I would have been about 48 then, it must have sounded to them as though somehow a 48-year-old man's voice could actually break a second time. <laughs> so my two themes are being different or strange and coming out. And to begin at the beginning, I want to remind us all that we do, all of us, come out at least once. The title of the first chapter of David Copperfield refers to that original coming out. The title of that chapter is called, I Am Born. <coughs> Dickens tells us that David is born at midnight on a Friday, and so the local women say he will be unlucky and able to see ghosts and spirits. He is indeed a queer and haunted child, a magical child. He is born with a call. He's born with a call, a piece of amniotic sack covering his head like a hood. They were sold to sailors as a charm against drowning. Just after his birth, David's call is advertised for sale, but no one offers enough money. Dickens reminding us, as he does so often, that the strange wisdom and energies of children are so often reckoned to be worthless. The call is eventually sold in a raffle when David is 10. 
an old lady who has never been to sea and does not intend to in any circumstances buys it and the call works. She dies triumphantly in her bed. <laughs> we are told, in fact, that she was against going to sea on religious grounds. <laughs> she, to the last, expressed her indignation at the impiety of mariners and others who had the presumption to go meandering about the world. Let us have no meandering, she says. So I'm interested in coming out and in being a queer child. I'm interested in the healing affordances of coming out, in its spiritual effects and in the way it changes the world. I'm also interested in the violence done to the queer child because, like David Copperfield, I was one. And perhaps more than anything, I would like that violence to stop. I'm aware that I'm using a difficult word. I don't mean God. I'm aware, I'm aware that I'm using a difficult word, the word queer. It's a word that may very well have been used to hurt some of us here. It has been used to hurt me, and it has become, even so, one of my favourite words. I use it in its oldest sense, which is the entwining of two things which are not usually entwined. It's a very old word, and it's related to the word athwart. Queer is something that straddles dimensions and definitions or plats them together. Queer braids and bends and blends categories. Of course, no one is just born. There is always someone putting in the hard labour. <laughs> My thoughts about coming out have been shaped by three great philosophers and theorists of sex. Gail Rubin, Eve Kosofsky-Sedgwick and Judith Butler. Not far from here, there is a huge mountain called Mam Tor, which means Mother Mountain. Gail Rubin, Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, and Judith Butler are my mother mountains, notorious as they are for overreading, for gratuitous elaboration, for barely justified speculation. <laughs> for a studied disregard of academic categories, for a kind of fanciful and perverse density, and believe me, for sentences longer and more inscrutable than this one. <laughs> that, that's over. 
they bring to philosophy queerness itself as an intellectual approach, queerness itself as a way of thinking. In their honour, I would like to come out right now, like those mariners and others in David Copperfield, I too am a meanderer. So I'm inviting you to meander with me this morning. I was 11 when I told my parents that I was a homosexual. I was so distressed that I could barely say the word. I stuttered and choked on it. In 1969, at the age of 11, I was in the first instance unspeakable even to myself. My parents were kind and patient, but the unspeakable nature of what I was telling them was clear. The unspeakable and haunted quality of the subject was clear. I come from the northeast, and what do you do when your son in the middle of the night gets you up to tell you he's a homosexual? They put the kettle on. <laughs> It is, it is, for me, the essential northern spiritual practice. <laughs> and while da Dad was in the kitchen, my mother said to me, we have to be careful when we talk to your dad about this, because when he was in the RAF, something happened. She didn't tell me what it was, but it was clear that I shouldn't ask my dad about it. It was clear that under no circumstances should I talk to my dad about what had happened to him. Thirty years later, I discovered that my dad and one of his mates had found the body of a fellow serviceman hanging. He had hung himself because he was gay. I want now to light a candle for that unknown airman, a candle of witness these many years later to his isolation and despair. May this flame be a prayer of affirmation, a prayer of reinforcement for anyone who has ever been persecuted for being different in any way. May this flame be a prayer for resilience.
So I came out when I was 11 and I have been asked sometimes how I could possibly have known this adult thing at such a young age. How could I have come to that conclusion? It's a good question. Of course I didn't have the sexuality of an adult gay man, but at that age I had lived with an awareness of my difference from several year, for several years. Just how did I know? I was a gentle and imaginative boy who loved books and nature. I spent a lot of time daydreaming and going to the beach. I dreamt of brave and handsome warriors and of rare and beautiful sea creatures. Near where I lived, near where I lived, there were marshes and in the middle of the marshes, illuminated at night by the blast furnace, was a big old house and I used to dream of living there. When I was eight, I made a witch in the form of a glove puppet, glove puppet. and for, during the summer of 1986, I spoke mostly through the witch. I was a boy witch. Even though I had never met such a person, my imaginary friend was a black woman who, if I may say so, wore a rather stylish green <laughs> turban. <laughs> but none of this could possibly have led me to the critical and distressing conclusion that I was that different and unwelcome type of person, the homosexual. In 1969, that word could only be repulsive to me. I did not want it. So how did I know? I knew this thing about myself because other boys at school wanted to hurt me. They hated me. They talked about ganging together in order to do something that they referred to as sorting me out. They never did because by then, out of necessity, I'd become hiding, I'd become good at hiding. But that moment was life-changing. That threat of violence defined me as positively deserving of being corrected in some unspecified but metaphysical way. I want to stop here and light another candle. I want to light a candle for those boys. This is, this is not to me a story of good victims and bad perpetrators. They were little boys. And I want, want to light a candle for their brokenness too.
This candle is a candle for anyone whose soul is so policed, so empowered, so composed that they persecute other people. I want to stand on the side of that brokenness too and to broaden it out, who among us has never hurt someone out of our own insecurity because we saw in them perhaps something strange, some, some strange and unwanted part of ourselves. This candle is a prayer for wholeness and forgiveness. Of course, as my life moved forward, I came out again to friends and colleagues and I started to heal from that sense of worthlessness. If you had asked me at the time, I would have said the healing was political. I became an activist and the politics of this do matter. But the real healing was emotional and spiritual. It happened in my heart and in my soul. It was being loved that enabled me to begin that process. That's what changed everything. I came out to my sister when she was 13 and I was 23. She had excellent taste. She loved Boy George and David Bowie. <laughs> So coming out to her wasn't exactly a risk. <laughs> but even so, her warm and straightforward acceptance was transforming. So I want to light another candle, a candle of gratitude to my sister, Samantha, to my friend, Ruth, who, when I was 17, just wanted to be my friend, and a candle of gratitude for a boy called Robert Levy who stood up for me when I was being bullied. I never thanked him. This candle is a candle of gratitude for anyone who is an ally of the odd or the marginalised or the persecuted. And we all have that capacity. This is a prayer of simple thanks. So another question, how is it that in 1953 a young serviceman comes to hang himself? How is it that in 1968 one group of children threaten to hurt another for a very specific reason? And why is coming out even a thing in the first place? The answer for me lies in the politics in the ideological landscape 
of the mid-20th century and in the psychic damage it inflicted. And I'd, li I'd like to explore that landscape for a moment, always bearing in mind the damage to, <coughs> the damage to everyone's soul that that landscape inflicted. In that landscape, in order to be, in order to be a person in the first place, a person must have a gen agenda. In order to be a person, a person must be a man or a woman. Being a gender is compulsory and the requirement is so pervasive so intense, so woven into being itself that only a small number of people, mostly feminists, can truly step outside it and see it. In this landscape there are two species of human being, men and women. The division and the inequality between them is natural, holy, judicial and eternal. It cannot have a history or a geography because it is religious and biological and national law. The division is also an opposition. Men and women, and it's a phrase that is so interesting, men and women are somehow the opposite sex. In order to be men and women, they must be in some way against each other. Reality depends on it. To be real men and real women, they must want only the gender they are against. It is God's will and it is nature's way and it is the law of the land that they can only desire the opposite sex. In this mid-20th century landscape, a person must experience sexual desire. An adult must experience desire. A person must be a gender and must have sexuality. Nobody who is natural or healthy or good or law-abiding can desire a person of their own sex or persons of both sexes. Nobody who is natural or good or healthy or law-abiding can think, act, dress, walk, excuse me, walk, talk, or have sex like the opposite sex. The people who do so are not quite real. At best, they might be ill. They are for sure illegal, possibly unnatural, and probably evil. It is generally undesirable to speak of them, although they can be spoken of as a joke or a threat. Homosexuals are at the same time very funny and very dangerous. 
all homosexuals must want to hurt all heterosexuals. They must be against the family, the church, the country and civilization itself. They are essentially against life. And incidentally, that's why all lesbian, gay or bisexual characters in fiction until really very recently must always die. They, they always die from Billy Bud the Sailor to Tara in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. If you are, if you are a, a lesbian or gay or bisexual fictional character, you will die. There will only be death in Venice. <laughs> I'm describing this landscape in stark terms. And of course, it doesn't convey the textures and the tenderness of people's lives in the mid-20th century, the connective tissue of people's lives. All kinds of people built all kinds of loving, respectful, and creative relationships, but always somehow shaped by that ideology. And all kinds of people were damaged too, bullied, diminished, humiliated, and sometimes destroyed. That landscape of ravines and crevices is internal. The damage is of a kind that lives inside people. However abstract or remote it might seem to talk in this diagrammatic way, let's be in no doubt about the foundational and creative power of this ideology. It is not just a collection of unfortunate opinions, and it is more even than a system of powers. It is a method of making human beings, and it is a method of terrorising the inner self. It is into this place that coming out speaks its truth, into this wounded place that coming out speaks. It speaks a kind of wholeness into the wound. It is only the beginning of healing. There are other types of healing, but that's what it can be, a seed of dignity and authenticity. It is a necessarily dramatic speech act, an act of naming oneself, of claiming for oneself a value, the beginning of a process of swapping shame for dignity and isolation for connection. Of course, in some lucky parts of the world, coming out has become increasingly ordinary, possible, routine even. Of course, it is still met too often with hostility and rejection, and God and nature are still invoked to sanctify hatred. There are places and times where it is wiser not to come out, 
it is not a moral duty. But however unevenly and slowly the territory of gender and sexuality, the dynamic between them is changing. Today, family, friends, colleagues might say, oh, at last, we wondered when you'd get round to it. <laughs> or they might say, you silly thing, we're gay too. <laughs> or they might say, as they sometimes do rather resentfully, so what, so you're gay? Not noticing that it is precisely lots of coming out that has made that attitude possible. Cumulatively, every person who comes out makes it just that little bit more possible. That little bit more possible for the next person. We might even think of coming out as sacrificial. It has that energy that recalibrates the world, that rebalances the universe towards justice and truth. Fifty years of coming, of coming out have disrupted that very polarising landscape. A new top topography is emerging, like one of those new volcanic islands, and it is a realm of joyous possibilities, a playful and volatile place. The love that dared not speak its name hardly ever shuts up today. <laughs> and, and, and there is an abundance of new names which speak their names with, which speak their own names with dignity and pride. An array of beautiful and courageous names that make new kinds of life and new kinds of justice possible. Transfeminist asexual, genderqueer, homoflexible, bigendered, aromantic, non-binary, scoliosexual, polyamorous, demisexual, pansexual, graysexual, queer, platonic, and perhaps the most ambitious of all, the gender abolitionists. <laughs> Oh, brave new world to have <laughs> such people in it. <coughs> this world of gender and sexual dissidence is not a straightforward place to live. Many of these identities are contested, self-conscious at first, a bit self-righteous sometimes, but I think of them as a kind of blossoming, an array of adventures in how to be human. My only personal disappointment is that pansexuality has nothing, nothing to do with fried breakfast. <laughs> I would have signed up in a second. That would have been, that would have been my, la my label. <laughs> I just want to go back for a while to our opening story, that story of the traveller because I think it can help us think about strangeness. It is a recurring narrative in Greek myth, and it is known as theoxony. I've got a visual. <laughs> so it, it is known as theoxony. This is God, and this is something like stranger. 
we're used to this word in xenophobia, and I'm including this next word purely for Jane. Anteaters, sloths, are called xenarthrins, which means strange bone. And I wanted to get an anteater in. <laughs> so, so theoxony. A god or goddess presents themselves as mortals to a stranger. Presents themselves, sorry, to mortals as a stranger in need. They are rejected at first. <coughs> excuse me, they are rejected at first and then welcomed, usually by poor people, which is when they reveal themselves as gods and reward their hosts. In Greek myth, the elderly couple Baucis and Philomen unknowingly welcome two travellers who turn out to be Zeus and Hermes. And that's what you can see in this uh, 17th century Dutch picture. That's Baucis and Philomen and Zeus and Hermes. And if you look at it closely, for some reason Hermes uh, just had to get his kit off. <laughs> but kept his top hat on. <laughs> I'm so, I'm so going to try that one day. But I assure you, not, not here. <clears throat> there are similar stories in the Old Testament too. Angels appear as strangers to Abraham and Sarah and to Lot and his wife. They are welcomed and they later reward their human hosts. Hebrew, Hebrews 13 verse 2 tells us, Be not forgetful to, enter, to, to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Theoxony is a rather is very interesting, and it is only a divine example of the classical Greek idea of xenia. We think of xenophobia as a fear of strangers, but xenia is a kind of ritual practice, and the word xenos can mean stranger or guest or host. Xenia was a kind of ritualised and reciprocal bond, the duty of a host to treat strangers with respect and kindness, and the duty of a guest to treat their hosts with respect and goodwill. One of the epithets of Zeus, the father of gods, is Zeus Xenios, protector of guests. Xenia was a bond of lasting loyalty and was sometimes ritualised by the two parties breaking a bone or a pot, each, and, and here is one, uh, each party taking a half, one half. The classical scholar Gabriel Herman says, when after some, the lapse of some time, the Zenoi, which is just the plural of Zenos, or their de descendants or dependents, when they met, the test of whether they were directly or indirectly related through Xenia 
would be whether these two pieces joined exactly. The objects that they broke were known as symbolon, origin of our word symbol, but it really means two things being thrown together. There is a faint and to me beautiful trace of theoxony in the Gospel of John, when after the crucifixion Mary visits the tomb where Jesus has been laid to rest and finds it empty. A man there asks her what she is looking for and she thinks he must be the gardener. She only recognises him when he says her name. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. This for me, personally, this is the superlative religious moment. Someone who looks like an ordinary person is revealed to be God. And God is revealed as an unknown but ordinary person. Mary is devastated. She is lost in her grief. And it is only when she hears the voice of Jesus say her name that she recognises him. In this moment, the Logos, the holy breath that inspires the cosmos with meaning and sanctity, in this moment, the word of God is a woman's name spoken in love, recognition and reassurance. And of course, it changes everything. To me, theoxony suggests that the queerest part of ourselves, the queerest part of ourselves, the part of ourselves we find hardest to recognise and honour, is our potential divinity, that holy flame, that sacred wing, that blade of grass, that weird and wise breath within us. Coming out has changed the world, but for me, it invites the question, what happens when we come in? What happens when we come in? Culture and technology have created for us the life of screens, the life of convenient and spectacular surfaces, the exterior life, and in all kinds of ways it's wonderful. But it is all about what is outside. Neuroscientists, sociobiologists and geneticists tell us that ourselves, our feelings, our decisions, our souls aren't real. Intoxicated by their particular discoveries, they reduce the whole of human experience to the body, which they say is only a complex machine. Everything can be reduced and simplified and understood. We can and we will and we must know <coughs> everything. 
I care very much about science and I care about bringing reason to faith. They are what called me to Unitarianism. I've been fascinated by science all my life. But I worry that the place of reason in our tra tradition can sometimes speak of a very Protestant desire to tidy up. <laughs> I am very fond of neat and dainty things, <laughs> but God is only sometimes neat and dainty. We don't need to know everything and we never will. We cannot capture the fugitive divine. We can't clean and polish, polish the pungent, unruly divine. We can't sterilize the fungal, subterranean divine. Why would we want to? We are mystified. We need mysticism. We need mystery. And it is surely only through our own mystery, the startling fact of our potential divinity, our potentia, our powerfulness, as theologians sometimes call it. It is only through that mystery that we can perceive the sacred realm within us and around us. And around us. There is a strangeness which cannot be recuperated. It lives within us, it is wild, and it is holy, and it is a blessing. I want to end with a few lines from that great song by Joan Osborne. Yeah, yeah, God is great. Yeah, yeah, God is good. What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. Amen. <laughs>